From the creator of Gilmore Girls, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel tells the story of Miriam Midge Maisel, a woman who has everything she's ever wanted, the perfect husband, two kids, and an elegant Upper West Side apartment. But her perfect life suddenly takes an unexpected turn, and Midge discovers a previously unknown talent, one that changes her life forever. Watch now, only on Prime Video. Welcome to Remote Controlled, Variety's TV podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, managing editor of TV Cynthia Littleton sits down with Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, the executive producers of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Stay tuned. Welcome to Remote Controlled. I'm Cynthia Littleton, Managing Editor of Television for Variety, and my guests here today that I am thrilled to be with on a cold December day in New York City are Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, creators and executive producers of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a truly marvelous new Amazon dramedy that has really come out and taken, taken the streaming world by storm. So welcome. Hello. Well, thank, thank you. you. Hello. Thank you for having us. Storm. You hear that? Storm. Took it by storm. <laughs> Amy, some years ago, I remember talking to you, and you mentioned you said something that always st- stuck with me. You said that you were a person born and raised in California, but meant to live on the East Coast. You were your just your soul was in the sort of. The, the more gray, uh, this seasonal <laughs> climate of the, you know, the brownstones of the East Coast. Now, for about three years, you have been, you have achieved your goal and become an East Coaster. Yes, I have. I Mar- can knock that one off the list. <laughs> <laughs> Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is a period drama set in the 50s in Manhattan. How happy are you running around New York City filming and you know, making this show come to life in, in your dream city. It's it's the greatest thing on the face of the earth. I, I grew up in Southern California, which was just a cruel, horrifying twist of fate, just like evil and mean and vicious on the part of the gods and my parents who couldn't even like... My parents, my father was from the Bronx, for God's sakes. It's like they couldn't even get it on the birth certificate. So it was just, just a, 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 a long trek back. And now that we're here and we're at Steiner Studios, which overlooks the Brooklyn Navy Yards, and you see bridges and water. and but It's just it's the most incredible place uh, to live and really great to work because in L.A., you work mostly on um, backlots. So you're very, you know, you spend, we spent, you know, six years of Gilmore Girls in Burbank, you know, pretending it was Connecticut and painting out the Burbank Hills when we <laughs> had the money. Um, and then now we are... Because it's not a backlot town. We have a stage at Steiner, but most of the time we're out um, shutting down streets all over the city. We apologize. Um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's very um, hard, and it's a lot of um, rock and roll. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's so great, because we've shot all over the city. We've shot West Side and downtown and Brooklyn and we've 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 been the scourge of everything. There, there's no neighborhood we have not annoyed yet, and it's been it's been pretty great. And ha, ha, do you find New Yorkers are amenable to you know? Do, 
Not at all. Not they're like, get out of my way. <laughs> could not be less It depends on where you are. They're, they're kinder on the like Upper East Side, Upper West Side. But when you get into the into Greenwich Village, where we sometimes shoot, boy, you hear some language that is the not East Village. for young children. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the East Village. You know, they, but it's... That's part of the fun too. Color and texture. A lot right? of color, a lot of texture. <laughs> and we're, we all, you know, we a lot of middle fingers. All these production crews do is basically accommodate neighbors and people around, and like no one is blocked, no one is, you know, everyone. It's just, it's a thing that they, that some people just do not like filming in their backyard, and I understand that. I do too. And Dan, did you share Amy's yearning for the East Coast? Was that well? Yeah, like that- all, like uh, uh, many, many times in LA over the years. Sometimes people would say, uh, "Oh, um, you know, you seem like you're from New York," and out there, that's never a compliment. <laughs> so I, I, I think you know, my, my, our rhythms just were always just a little more. Um, like kind of cliche New Yorkers as opposed to sun baked beach volleyball play in Southern Californians, which we were were never. Um, we don't juice. We've never juiced. <laughs> yeah. and we, we will and, not juice. And we, we will not juice. We and can we, buy juice. And we do like seasons. So we've, we've always wanted to. And, you know, New York is New York. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. You're so like it's, walking you, out, opening your door and walking out, and you are somewhere. <laughs> and you can walk somewhere. In L.A., it's just like you better like your car. You know, because you're gonna, you're, you and your car are having a deep, intimate, inappropriate relationship because that's who you spend most of your time with. Yeah, I mean, in, in here in New York, like where where we live, it's like Truman Capote used to live there, and <laughs> Arthur Miller wrote Death of a Salesman there, and in L.A., it's like I think uh, Ed Norton lived on our block for uh, a short no, time. No, well, no, Ed Norton didn't. Courtney Love, because I was writing Gilmore Girls when they were dating, and Courtney Love rented the house across the street and mm. Edward Norton would come visit her and that was the highlight of my day because I would just <laughs> wait cultural. for her to like run out and say hi to Edward Norton they'd hug and they'd walk back in the house I'm like yes yeah, exciting so, <laughs> it was very exciting for me tell us about tell us about the inspiration for Maisel it's a it's you know it's just a fantastic um it's a fantastic role for Rachel Brosnahan a 1950s almost you know, right out of central casting, 1950s Jewish housewife, got the nice Upper West Side apartment, family, throwing great Yom Kippur dinners, and then a curveball comes into her life. How did, how did all that, what was the inspiration for? Well, you know, I don't, it's, I, I would love like there to be like a great story that went with like, and this is how I came up with it. You know, my father was a comic, so I grew up with stand-up comedians hanging out in my house, because stand-up comedians either work a lot or they have a lot of time on their hands <laughs> to sort of hang around with each other, eating deli, making each other laugh. So it was like Broadway Danny Rose, you know, a lot of the times at my house. And I, I grew up with that sort of that that energy and the tales of Greenwich Village and, you know, the Catskills and funny stories. And it just made New York seem like, you know, like Xanadu to me. You know, it was like it just really seemed very um, exciting and sort of uh, vibrant. And and I think that, that that idea of that world always sort of maybe stuck with me. Um, and then I was just looking for, like, what's the next interesting chick to hang out with for the next few years of my rapidly deteriorating life. And I thought, well, it might be fun to sort of watch the journey of someone who's so not of that world sort of entering it kind of the way 
I thought about it as a kid. Like it, it would, it seemed like so magical and foreign. And yet, my dad was a comic, so you saw the other side of it too. That comedy was very hard, and it was a little unforgiving, and it was very lonely. And you know, the funniest people in the world are not necessarily the happiest people in the world. And like it, all of that, I thought, just was good fodder for someone who felt like her life was perfect and was queen of like six blocks, and then suddenly is sucked into a whole other. You know, right down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. The Midge character yes. gets, you know, her husband leaves her. He does. And she decides. And she's so adorable. She decides, not through any particular grand plan, but almost by circumstance. She sort of gets sucked in. She discovers a side of her and a voice in her that she kind of never knew was there. You know, she had it. That's what the wedding uh, toast sequence was at the beginning of the pilot. She was a natural ham. And then she did, right. she discovered that she was even more natural when she when she ended up on stage in the pilot and people were literally telling her go to the microphone and talk to us. It was just it was like an animal finding its natural habitat. But th- so this there was not from you know your family's background and all the there was not a p- specific person that inspired Midge. No, it was no. Yeah. Remind us your father's name. Don Sherman. Don Sherman. Gotcha. Um, yeah, well, it sounds like a lot of, you know, a, a lot of very formative, formative memories for you in, in yes, that world. Yes, it was. World. It yeah. was. Yeah. It was a lot of, you know, I grew up on Mel Brooks's 2,000-year-old man albums, like over and over on a loop. So that, that'll scar you. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, that, that sort of sets the stage. There's no getting out of it then. So that was the rhythms in my head of what comedy, what I, what I found funny. How is it for you doing a period piece? You know, Maisel is the touches of the 1950s, so right down to Liberace <laughs> on the screen, and the you know the her her young son watching Howdy Doody. <laughs> Dare anybody take away the Howdy Doody from him? Um, uh, we're look, life takes the Howdy Doody away from you. That's what happens. Um, it's been great. We we've really enjoyed it because we well, first of all, it's so it's so beautiful. You know, I mean, the 50s was a time where they wanted appliances to look beautiful, where where color was very important, where cars look cars were gorgeous, were like works of art. You know, they don't do that anymore. But like that's what it was then, and and the the clothing and the the pops of pop art, you know, and the signage on the on the walls uh, and on the streets. It's a vibrant, pulsating feel, um, and it it so so visually, it was a wonderful thing to step into because we get to work with these unbelievable people who that's what the kind of work they want to do. You know, Bill Groom was our production designer and Donna Zacasco is our uh, unbelievable costume lady. You know, they, they want to work on something that looks like this, that has scope that they can use all of their evil skills. Um, and it allows us to then work with them. Um, that has been ridiculously fun. Um, and, and frankly, I enjoy that. I have not, type the word Snapchat in months and months and months. I've enjoyed it. I continue to enjoy it. I will enjoy it for many years to come, hopefully. So that's, that's, uh, it's, it's been really great. In writing, in writing a show set in that time, does it, does it really, um, sort of reinforce how much that world has changed? You can't write a scene where she, you know, she calls Joel on the cell phone to yell at it. Like, I mean, does it, to having to write your characters authentically in that period, does it? Well, yeah, you do, you, you, you do get used to like, people can call wherever they are and it does become it, it for storytellers it really changes things to have to go back 
to before that time when mm -hmm. you basically had to be home to get a phone call because you answered the phone. It was even before answering machines. But especially that they just cannot make calls from wherever they are or be reached wherever they are. It really is a whole different thing. It's, you, it, you know, stories were told for millennia before there were cell phones, so it's not impossible to go back to that, but it's, it's, it's different to, to go back to that time when people just are not reachable. It's actually great for storytelling, though, because it opens up venues of story because things aren't instant, mm -hmm. which means mm -hmm. things can happen and people don't know about it within three seconds. It's plausible, yeah. It's exactly. totally plausible. And it's, it's, you know, we were remembering back to, like, the first year of Gilmore Girls, and they didn't have cell phones in Gilmore no, Girls. No, it, was, it pagers, was a weird trans... Right? Yeah. Right? Like a weird... They beepers. Like, they all, they were, like, the wire. They were all yes. walking around with pagers and beepers on. It was very Yeah, because actually when I was re-watching the shows when we were going into the movies, I hadn't seen the shows in, like, eight years, so I was re-watching them, and I, I made a note that, like, Rory takes her first selfie in like season four, like yeah. literally, like it was two thousand four before she actually took a picture of herself. Right. So that's about the time that that was sort of entering. Amy and I are always like about a year or two behind. We're not exactly early or adapters, or we don't adapt he's, at all he's to anything. Better than I am. I literally, I just stopped at a certain point, and I've decided I've learned all I can learn. <laughs> just, there's no, there's nothing more that's going to be processed up there. So <laughs> save it for the script. Yeah, save exactly. It for the script. It, but thinking about Maisel too, it really has a color palette. Mm. It's a beautiful, not sepia, but there's a there's a. It's yeah, it's not sepia because we specifically didn't want to put any sort of weird filter on it. We wanted we wanted it to feel like the vibrancy of the '50s because those those that believe me, there was so much research done. I mean, we these people are like. You know, everything is about that's not period. That wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be, you know. Um, so it's 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 very true to what um, the times was. And it was an energetic time. It was after the war. And it was supposed to be that time of, like, innovation. And, like, we're surging ahead. And that was sort of um, expressed in the surroundings and sort of the, the, the feel of, of how everybody dressed. And, and, you know, that women would go get a sandwich at a luncheonette but in a hat and gloves and you know that's just the, how they did it that you you might say that's ridiculous but then you look at you look at all the research it's like nope there they are they're sitting there with the hats and the gloves and the yeah it was like like we discovered things like in businesses like diners cleaners things like that there would be lots and lots of signs usually small ones very colorful advertising all sorts of things but in businesses and a lot of homes people did not hang things on walls there, there's a lot of blank walls, or they would have one really, really great painting. And in businesses, they really kept walls very, very, um, very, very empty. And it's just something you discover that that you know, it's like because we because we would come on a set and go, can we put a yeah. sign here? Put, put it's, a like, it's a big great and, wall. And our production designer would say they didn't do that back then. They didn't put yeah. clocks and posters yeah. and things like that up. They it was much. It was a little more spare. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, to, almost to make what, what is up there pops a little bit more. Yeah, you know? yeah, and it was just like the design was the clean, you know, in those offices especially those, you know, because we have we have three sort of different palettes. We have our Upper West Side, our Midtown, and the Downtown, which is and and each one of them are very different. You know, even down to you know the clothing is different. Um, it's much more integrated downtown than it is uptown. It's more crowded, obviously. It's more crowded. It's more... And downtown has, like, sort of that... It feels like that sort of clean steel glass kind of feeling, whereas the up, 
Upper Upper West Side is a little bit more. It's comfortable. It's those apartments it's, that have been around since the 1800s that they were they were in a vintage apartment then in 1958 because those apartments were, you know, from 1858 or whatever that they built those. And then and then downtown, which had that real like dark but but vibrant sort of noisy um, uh, atmosphere. It, it, it's it's fun to also play with that, the fact that there are three really different sort of worlds to, like, have them hang in. And juxtaposition, like Joel's, you know, Joel's world and Joel's father, who's a fantastic right. character. Yes. You know, that's it's definitely the yes. contrast to the Upper West Side. We're going to take a quick break right here, and we'll be back with more from Amy and Dan. From the creator of Gilmore Girls, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel tells the story of Miriam Midge Maisel, a woman who has everything she's ever wanted, the perfect husband, two kids, and an elegant Upper West Side apartment. But her perfect life suddenly takes an unexpected turn, and Midge discovers a previously unknown talent, one that changes her life forever. Watch now, only on Prime Video. And we're back with Amy and Dan. How has it been for you to work on this show, on a show where you produce everything lock, stock, and barrel, and the shows all drop on one day? That's got that's got to be a first for you. I don't like it, but that's just you know. Again, I'm 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 grandma. I don't like it. I I feel like <laughs> only because I remember I used you know the the that anticipation of waiting. You know, like you still get with like Game of Thrones or something like that. That anticipation of waiting. For that show, and like you know, and then that day comes, and Thursday it's like, don't night. call me. So the so Sopranos are on. If you call me, I'll never speak to you again. I don't want to talk to you. You know, one night there was a rainstorm, and there was like the dish was facing the wrong way, and he's on the roof in the rain, moving very the dish. Heroic. It was a very heroic image of me. It was because <laughs> I don't go on roof. We were in like a panic. They were going to miss the Sopranos that night. Like it was that sort of like, and I, I just, I. To me, I just feel like when you get it all at once, you don't quite have that because you have so much access to it. But, um, but they've just you know they've discovered that not everybody there are bingers, it. but I think most people do not binge. We we, we don't naturally binge because we don't have the time or and also like we're also hearing that a lot of people are a lot of people have come up, been coming up to saying I'm trying not to watch the next one because I want to I want to space it out so that I have more left. So yeah, it's like when Peaky Blinders comes out. They give you like six, and that's got to last you for like fifteen years. So it's like you really got to like space that, space it out. But our shows are also they're very dense. They're very you know there's a lot. We always we always we always um, sort of encourage people to maybe not binge it because it it sometimes I think you miss the subtleties and like especially because the pace is so fast, things can sort of whiz by that that you might want to pay attention to. And then on the other hand, do whatever you want. So <laughs> as long as you it's watch, America, right? or they can watch it again. Who, who am I to tell anybody what the hell to do? Watch. Nobody should be listening to me for any sort of life advice whatsoever. Watch, buy a hat on Amazon. Mm-hmm. It's, that's the that's there the virtuous circle. There Boom. you go. When the hat comes in the mail, then you watch the next one. <laughs> there that's you right. go. <laughs> there you Jeff go. Bezos is a genius. Well, has it been like for you? Obviously, there's been speaking of. Amazon there you know there's been there's been some changes mm-hmm. at, at, at Amazon. it's calmed down there though I must say it seems it seems like it's settled over there mm-hmm. 
But you, at the premiere, you gave them very high praise. You said it was the best working experience that you've ever had, as well, I recall. Well, our team, the people that we have dealt with, Mark Restichini and Ken Lipman and Donna, the casting queen over there, like, you know, th- th- those people have been our constants since I pitched. I mean, Mark Restichini was the guy I pitched to, you know, two and a half billion years ago. So it it's, our team has remained completely constant the whole time. So actually... All of the kerfuffles never really touched us, um, and our team has been literally, l- l- yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> huh? But you know, Kong, yeah. All the plants are safe at Amazon, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> they they have just been so really incredibly supportive of a show that is not an easy show. It is, it is a it's a period piece. It's a lot of which it just makes it more expensive. It's New York, which makes it more expensive, and it's uh, it, it it takes it took real um, uh, support to be able to pull it off. Like we couldn't have done what we did. Like with Gilmore, it was constantly we never had enough money. It was just talks about money and budgets and money and budgets and money and budgets. We literally would not have had the time to produce the show if we had to have the kind of talks about money and budgets that we've had to do our entire career. It was sort of like, we trust you. Don't come back for another check, but this check will clear. Go do your thing. And that's kind of what happened. And it was, um, it was just from beginning to end, it was a real kind of... Um, non-dirty love fest it was just a really it's a they're they've been really good partners and we've really it's it's a good place for us it's a good format for us it's a you know this kind of character is not any sort of character that can exist really anywhere else except on a streaming network um or possibly like a hbo you know this this girl doesn't go on cable they wouldn't have no interest in midge Maisel or her world or this world um in network TV. So it it was we found the right home for the whole production and for and the support for the the mental breakdown journey that we decided to go on. Did it did it um did it affect the way you sort of conceived the show and paced the show having knowing that you had two seasons right from the get-go? No, because we didn't know right from the get-go. They 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 wanted a big surprise. So <laughs> we were already like we had already decided, like, well, it's it's seven episodes for the pilot, so maybe we won't staff up till like we'd already done that, and then they're like, hey, it's two seasons, and we're like, oh, three weeks earlier, but they it, they they wanted it to be like a big surprise, but no, it it, it what it did do is it made us uh, more it, it it allowed us to really keep our our crew, which our crew is is vital, like we have an unbelievable crew camera people, two amazing DPs, um, and, and all of our production design costs. You know, when you, when they know that there's sort of a stability in a show, it's either, it's easier to keep good people around and the show can't survive without them. So Mm -hmm. especially with all the elements that are in there. Just can't, can't. So if if any of them are thinking they're ever going anywhere else, (laughs) they're so mistaken. It's just not in their cards. Um, Rachel Brosnahan is just is just a revelation in the show and she boy she tackles that Amy Sherman Palladino dialogue <laughs> she wrestles it to the ground she and makes leans it, in that makes girl it leans into it yeah. did you know her did you was she in your uh, in your thoughts as you were cre- conceiving the character or was it a no I mean we we obviously knew who she was she, we we were like sort of deep into the casting process there were 
two or three really very, very good actresses who wanted the role and came in and read. And then our L.A. casting director, Jeannie Bacharach, uh, called up and, and, and said, you know, there's this girl... I, you, you may or may not know who she is, but she's amazing. She's never done any comedy per se, but for some reason, I think that she could do this. Rachel Brosnahan. We knew who she was. We, I mean, we, we cards, really, you yeah. know, but we were like, really? The, the girl who was like stuffed in a van and zip tied and thrown into a ditch? That? <laughs> That's the that's the comedy girl, but it's it's literally it, and also uh, Lee Silverman, the who is the director yeah. of Violet. Um, she's this great Broadway director. We she's a friend of ours, and we were kind of like running names past her. And when she heard Rachel, she says, "Do it." But you know, we're you that, know that's sort of the thing when you meet Rachel. It's 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 kind of like there's kind of nothing she probably can't. Yeah, do, there's there's except pre- there's tall. predecessors. There's like you know Lucille Ball played vamps and dark. Roles and was just sort of a femme fatale for, for, for until she was forty, and then she did I Love Lucy, and suddenly everybody discovered she was really, really, really funny. So we never believed that, like, like w- whenever someone at a studio network says, "Well, that person's just comedy, that person's just drama," that doesn't mean anything to us because we know that there are exceptions, and we're really sensitive to anybody being pigeonholed. So we gladly had her come in and read, and basically, you know, she won this part the old-fashioned way. She just she she basically had the role on that on that audition. I mean, that was it. She kind of did three big scenes, including the stand-up scene, which is not easy to do without audience, without more than just me and Amy yelling, trying to trying D- to Dan be going, an audience. And going woo and all that stuff. But I mean, she 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 came in with that confidence that you see on screen. Um, which was which is really important for that role. Some actors came in and they just they just didn't have the confidence. This the the girl herself, the actor, had to come in and be as confident as Midge was going to be, or else she was not going to be able to to really bring that character to life. So you know, she has a thing. When you write a character, you have a picture in your mind. You know, sometimes it's an existing actress although that has really never worked for me I've always had sort of a very specific picture of what I think this character should look like walk like even talk like mm-hmm. um, and it, it was kind of I'll know it when I see it you know and Lauren Graham walked in the room mm-hmm. you know Kelly Bishop walked in the room mm-hmm. and then and for this I, I knew how I wanted her to smile that sounds weird but like I knew what the smile was and Rachel walked into the room with that confidence of like a little spark plug and she had that smile and she just had it and it is a it's a thing that is like there's there's something about Rachel that she's a terrific actress and she's very um uh it, she's very smart, and you can really talk through things. And she's very fearless and very willing to just sort of throw herself. You know, one direction you almost never give Rachel is like, you seem scared of this, you know, because she doesn't. You know, it, it, she'll do it, and then she'll come to you afterwards, and she's like, how weird did I look doing that? But, like, Rachel doesn't sort of stop herself from going, which is very important. But she also has a thing, and it's that, it's why... Stars are stars. She's infinitely watchable. There's something about her face that is like, I can't tell you what it is. Yes, she's pretty, and and it's an intelligent pretty, which is 
really nice, but there's so many pretty, beautiful, beautiful women in the world. But there's something about Rachel that, like, she's just never... It, you never just get tired of watching her face. And the pilot was literally this broad in every scene, <laughs> in every frame of the pilot it's almost. It's really on her you shoulders. You had to watch her face and not get tired of, of seeing her face. It, that was like... That that was a very big, was a very big deal. And and the thing about her, we because after we auditioned her, we kept going back and watching the tape and watching the tape of, of our work session. It's like you never got tired of watching the tape. And it's like, well, if we're not tired of it, then we're you know, I think we're we're in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. She's very special. Did you coach her at all on the voice? She has a very lyrical. The character has a very lyrical voice. Well, you know, she's she's sometimes you you know, we've been in comedy a gazillion years. And and sometimes you you have to say like, yeah, got to hit this word, because why? Who knows why? It's funnier if you hit that word or what the accent of a joke is or something like that. But um, you know, a lot of Midge's comedy is stream of conscious. It's not it's not like real setup joke, setup joke, setup joke. And we wrote it that way very specifically because we knew we were going to get an actress to play this part and for an actress to be able to lean in to the comedy because it's a very different skill being a stand-up comic than being an actress. It's just and it's and it's earned by you know years of crappy clubs, you know, and failed sets and honing the same joke over and over and over and over again. Um and we knew that we would need to give this actress an emotional through line to lean into so that her comedy wasn't such a foreign thing to her. It's like when you give some, sometimes you see a movie or something or a TV show where someone's playing a musician and you just know that person's never held a guitar before, <laughs> even if they're not playing. It's just the way they hold their body and the guitar sort of strapped on it. You're like, that person has never gone near a guitar. It's the first time they've ever touched a guitar. You know, Same thing with guns. You know, You can always tell... You know, when somebody's pointing a gun at someone and they're, you're like, eh, I don't think you really know how to use that gun. You know, it's it's a skill that you and have to And that's just me believe. and Amy at home. Yeah, just guns and guitars. Guns and guitars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like a Lee Marvin movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. guns and guitars. Um, I like it. Tell me, uh, Alex Borstein, too. Mm-hmm. It's very, you know, kind of off center casting for her in terms of in terms of the, in terms of the role of Susie. It's it's really. Uh, it's quite a. Was that a, something that she, you know, came in through the casting process? Did you have her in mind for that character? We wrote it for Alex. I mean, Al, we know Alex. We've we've known her. You know, Dan worked with her on Family Guy, and actually said to me when I was casting Gilmore Girls, and I was casting Suki, he said you should bring Alex in. And he didn't even know if Alex had done any acting. She just did voices for uh, um, Family Guy, and she, I think she'd done stand up and sketch comedy and. Um, she just seemed like someone who would be a really, really good actress. You know, cause sometimes you can tell from like a sketch actor and then who who they are as people, whether they can go deeper than doing just Miss Swan, which is brilliant. And I, I, I just always had that sense that Alex had could go way deeper than the stuff she was doing on Matt TV and Lois Griffin. And, and she it would she and she absolutely can. And, and she was our original Suki. She was, you know, she came in and she out of the blue kind of won the part everybody just mad I mean I think you know it took 
it took Peter Roth at over Warner Brothers a long time to get over the fact that that Matt Devey wouldn't let her out of her contract and we couldn't have her. Luckily, we found Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> what? I mean, it, it was that. It, that I don't part know what was, she's doing now. I don't know. I, Is she doing okay? Mm, hmm. Maybe we should throw her oh, a couple of lines. Melissa's doing fine. <laughs> but um, so we so since we didn't get to like suck her into um, Gilmore World, we've always tried to work with her, and this just felt like. That's the girl, and if you know her, and if you had, if anyone had seen her work on on um, Getting On, that was what's called Getting On, right? Mm-hmm. That HBO show that she was in. It was, I mean, she was just did some unbelievably brilliant work there, and I was just, I was so blown away by everything she did all the time, and um, and she, uh, you know, and she was just, she's very, very, very funny, um, and she's also just really vulnerable. Like, she's somebody who can play hard and soft in the same line, and that's a very hard thing to do. And she's just, she's great. And she and Rachel, we put them together because we had them read together before we made podcasting to make sure that it worked. And there's just was something about those two people standing next to each other that was funny. So, luckily, that worked out brilliantly. Um, let me ask you, since you're in New York, in the heart of the theater world, do you have any ambition to write anything for the stage? Yes. Yeah, but Arthur Miller already did Death of a Salesman. Oh, I, I was working on that six years, and someone told me it had already damn been done. It. Damn it. God darn it. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, I mean, we, we love theater. You know, we we, we were lead, two of the lead producers on uh, a musical a few years ago, Violet, um, and we're Tony nominees, Cynthia. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yes. Um, that's, that's street cred around here. That's street cred. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And we love musicals and... You know, we love theater, so uh, maybe more than anything in the world, quite frankly. I mean, it's, it's, we have a lot of friends in theater, Sutton Foster, who obviously is our, we will forever be tied to her, whether she likes them or not. <laughs> it's really, it's really kind of not up to her anymore. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it's a great world, and, and working with theater people, um, which we, you know, when you're in New York, you get to work with more theater people because that, that's who's here to, to come in. And it's just, it's, a, it's such an interesting uh, experience. And the work ethic is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. It's, it's, talk about like never tiring and just the work is the work is the work. And the work is the pure joy for the work. It's yeah, like, to, to, Tony Shalhoub is doing eight shows a week now and the band's visit, which... It is a sensational show. We saw it off Broadway. It is. It's. It's, it's a wonderful it's show. Life changing. It's and it's like it's Tony, who's in marvelous. Mrs. Yeah, Tony's in marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and like we 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 go backstage, and it's amazing because theater performers have more energy after these shows late at <laughs> night than we do coming backstage. It's like they're like they're like. <gasps> Uh, wide-eyed and like it's like they're they're incredible the the rhythms they get into to do all the work that they do um and make make it seem so effortless so we 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 love the theater community and we we do we do want to get more into that for sure so like a script in the in the typewriter now or just something long terms a goal uh, both. Okay. Both. All right. Well, we'll stay Actually. tuned. Now, you know I can't let you go. With what that. I like is, though, that you said typewriter. Because you know you're talking to, like, two old-timey <laughs> people. Like, <laughs> We do use a computer to uh, to write a script. I know what you're going yes. to say. You can't let us go before you find out there's going to be a Who's the Boss revival. Right. Because I wrote on Who's the Boss. Yes. There is no talk of that. I ran into Tony Danza the other mm-hmm. day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love Tony. 
I can't let you go without asking the Gilmore Girls question. Anything, uh, anything in the hopper? Nothing at the moment. You know, we, we have the Gilmore Clause. Uh, we can, we can, you know, we can do something. We have the uh, legal ability. It would have to be, but you know, the thing is, we always said we weren't going to do it before, and then, and then we went to Texas, and I don't know if it was the humidity because it was really humid there, but or or what it was, it was just being in the room with everybody where we all sort of looked at each other and kind of said, like, this feels like a good time, right? So that um, I think that it would have to be the same thing. It would be you know Dan and me and Lauren and Alexis and Kelly in an open bar, and we'll <laughs> and and if the moment is right, then sure. It would just have to be the right format. It would have to be the right story. It would have to be the right. I don't think it would be four ninety-minute things. I think we want to do something different again. You know, we're just we're not interested in just repeating what we've already done. And um, but uh, there's always a possibility because we 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 never had chance to have fun the first time because we were all scrambling and working so hard. So doing the movies like was the first time that we got to have fun. You know, mm-hmm. and sit, and I got to hang with Lauren. You know, rather than just like seeing like a flash as she's running this way and I'm running that way. So it's it's some it's something that would be a delight if we can all figure out how to make it happen. All right, well, we'll try to we'll get some crowdfunding for okay, that open yes, bar there you in go. Texas. No problem. That's what we need. Dan and Amy, thank you so much for being here and spending this time with us. Really appreciate it. You're and welcome. congratulations on the success of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. I'll be talking with Dylan McDermott, who's showing off his comedy chops in Fox's new series, L.A. to Vegas. See you next time. From the creator of Gilmore Girls, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel tells the story of Miriam Midge Maisel, a woman who has everything she's ever wanted, the perfect husband, two kids, and an elegant Upper West Side apartment. But her perfect life suddenly takes an unexpected turn, and Midge discovers a previously unknown talent, one that changes her life forever. Watch now, only on Prime Video.